I feel more than fortunate to be here. I don't know what word to put to it because um, it's really precious and wonderful to witness, to bear witness your deep questioning and your deep commitment to opening to who you are, we are, as individuals together and interconnectedly in a way that reveals your commitment, your deep commitment. And um, as Larry says, it is, it is such an honor, but it's so much more than that because it's a joy, too, that I'm with elders and peers and I see the young ones in the community that are like, could be the age of my children who aren't sitting here, you know, and, and that's, how it, <laughs> that's how it is, too. And, and they're wonderful people also. And um, I just feel close to you in that way and many times have um, little tears of happiness to just be here amongst you. We're all opening to that inner terrain together. I haven't finished my own journey yet. So I'm opening to the same things you are and asking the same questions you are, no differently. Um, We may see them or come from different angles or or our answers may come from different angles, but it's so wonderful to see the various different ways that we approach and it widens me. It, it makes me bigger. It makes my heart bigger to hear all of, uh, of the different venerables here responding in the various different ways. Aren't we so lucky to, be, to have our hearts made so much bigger by all of this? The big question is, for me and maybe for all of us, is how can we relate to the changing outer terrain of the world with our changing inner world terrain? That, that's a very big question for me all the time. You know, and the relate, how we relate is always changing. Hopefully it's with more and more wisdom. One thing that all of us have in common, I think I can speak for all of us, I've heard stories of many people in my life here so far on earth, is um, that we all have a kind of universal longing, a kind of common thing. And that is that we're all longing to be happy, to be truly happy, a kind of happiness that isn't dependent on the outer conditions of the world. Though we we may try to do what we can to make the outer conditions in agreement with our deep longing. But how do we do that when things outside of us don't change the way we want them to? How can we be happy? How can we live in peace? How can we experience a deep union with life? Isn't that what we want in some way, a deep feeling at least of union with life so that we don't feel separate, where the 
violence, anger, injustice, those ways of the world don't need to separate us. Where, on the other hand, we may be able to feel connected in a deeper way through those experiences, through those ways that we perceive the world. How can we accept ourselves and love ourselves completely? How can we accept ourselves and love others and accept others completely? These are really big questions, and I hear that in my own heart and in everyone's heart. This, this is what brings us together. As one of my students says, it's, it's one of her metta or loving-kindness phrases, may I love myself completely, no matter what. May I love others, no matter what. And she says that in the midst of her trials and tribulations of life that are, that are quite difficult, as all of ours are, in one way or another. This kind of spiritual longing or for some of us, we may have already connected to or have acknowledged this spiritual urgency. It's, it's not just this longing, it's this urgency to know something deeper than we already know. So it's not just to change what's going out there, but to know something more deeply so that um, we can feel in some way complete and strong in ourselves. And, and not feel so helpless. This a spiritual urgency has an actual term in, in the Pali. This is the, the language that uh, is used to record the, the Buddha's words, Lord Buddha's words, Pali and, and Sanskrit, um, and Tibetan also, and Burmese also, and Sri Lankan also. But uh, in Pali, the word is samvega. There might be a similar word in Sanskrit. But there is this very particular word that describes this spiritual urgency. It's a real thing, spiritual urgency. It is uh, an actual emotion, you might say, that we have. And, And we all feel that. That's why we're here together. This urgency takes us on a journey. And we're on that journey, whether we've recognized it or not. We're on that journey. It, it takes us through different terrain, not only the different outer terrain, like it took us to this retreat, but it takes us to the inner terrain. And sometimes that is by far the most challenging to traverse. It's no accident that we're all together here. This Samvega brought us together in this place together, where we all learn from each other, where your deep questioning and your comments open my own heart, where some just kind of offhanded comment that I get in the, in the dining hall from uh, one of the support here is, is a a deep gem of wisdom. They didn't even know it. So we, we learn from each other here. We're growing out of our present or current kind of 
niche of understanding to something greater. Hopefully that's what we want to do instead of making the ditch deeper, the niche. <laughs> yeah, ditch is a good word. Um, <laughs> some, somebody here long ago um, said she wants to get out of the cow path of her mind. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's what I want to do too. I think that's what we all want to do, to see life differently, to change our perspective. The alchemy of our being together changes us in far-reaching ways, in ways that we may never know. I was so happy. I, I, I couldn't contain myself uh, the other day when uh, Roshi was saying that he was the mailman in East Palo Alto. I couldn't wait to tell him that he affected my life because I lived in East Palo Alto when he was a mailman. <laughs> and I, I probably didn't know it, but he was going down my street and delivering mail. And the, the one Japanese family that he knew, I knew. They were the Matsuuras, you know. And that's you where... You were on my route. <laughs> you were on my route. I was on your route. It, I, was, I just felt like, wow, the, the Dharma's powerful. <laughs> I mean, I picked up your essence, you know, of your search, of your Samvega. You were looking for something. I was delivering mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got it. I got you. <laughs> I love it. You delivered that mail to me, you know, somehow. You, and that's where you found that um, the venerable Suzuki Roshi was, was here in, in, San, um, in San Francisco. And so I picked up on it somehow. I'm sure of it. There's no mistake. There's no accident, you know. And at that time, I was searching too. I was a young girl. I, was, I didn't know where to look. I was searching. I, I went to the Catholic Church in East Palo Alto, and I was... Uh, they had a Catholic Church in East Palo Alto? Yes, they did. <laughs> they had a cat. I, I looked for it the last time I was there. And um, when I, I was uh, going home from school one time, and I was baptized into um, a congregational church, my father's American, my father's, my mother's Filipino, my mother Catholic. So on the way home, there was always this church, you know, and um, you could always go in. And I was always searching, like, how do I find a way that it can't be just in the book, it can't be just what somebody tells me. There has to be some place. Maybe it's inside, you know. Somehow we get that sense that there's something that's hidden like um, the, the Reverend was talking about just before this, that we're holding it ourselves. And so I, I went into the Catholic Church and I, I knocked on the door. I, I would go and sit there in the quietness of the church after school. And then I knocked on the door one time of the priest and I said, I want to become Catholic. And I made up my mind. And... Um, so he said, okay, and we went on, and I became a Catholic, and that, that served me for a long time, just going into the quietness of, of a church. And, and then there was something more I needed, so my journey took me on from there. I'm not saying that 
it was inadequate um, it, because the, that, that is a precious path for many people. But uniquely for me, there was something more, and so I needed to go on. So we're on this journey that has us searching, and we're, we're taking it through this outer world that has a mixture of violence and peace, that has a mixture of justice and injustice, that has a mixture of sorrow and happiness. And um, through that journey, too, once in a while we may sit down and be quiet and look inside and see that which is out there is also in here. There's also happiness, sorrow, justice, injustice, violence, peace. It's, all, it's also here. Could it be that what makes up this outer world is also you know, part of who I am or who I think I am? And so we begin to maybe make a connection on, on this journey. So I have a lot of questions, and like you do, I don't have the answers, but I'm finding some that suffice along the way. The answers keep changing. How can we keep being this in this ever-changing world, in the ever-changing moments, experience of this world, and continue to keep our hearts open? That's a big question for me. How can I keep doing this, be on this journey, and not close down with the violence, or when it's peaceful, to try to hold on to that being permanent? How can I not push away what's violent? How can I not be attached or cling to what's peaceful? How can I continue to see clearly the difference between um, clinging, protecting in a, in a way that causes suffering, and enjoying the peace that's there, and cultivating it also? How can I not turn away when um, this journey means that I have to walk through hell? And, and like all of you, I've walked through hell. I've, there's been a lot that's happened in my life. Um, and I don't need to, to tell you the details. Uh, your stories, your own stories, are the details of that. How can I not strike out when it feels like that's all I can do to relieve my suffering, is to strike out and to give it to somebody else. Striking out includes blame. You know, where it's all out there, it's all out there, it's all out there, and so I don't have to look in here. How can I turn and say, looking in here is painful, that's why I don't look in here and feel compassion for that, instead of pushing that away and blaming myself? How can I say, it hurts? I, I can see that in other people more than I can see it in myself sometimes, when it's so hard for people to look inside because it's so painful to look inside. And it, it takes time to actually turn and look inside. How can we help in the world without adding more violence, 
the violence of blaming and condemning and criticizing and self-righteousness. You know, that's, that's a violence of separation. So today, um, with all of these questions, I'd like to explore the terrain of compassion as a beneficial force that supports us on our journey. There are many uh, forces that support us, and you know, and we all are the ones who are talking here on on this side, Um, we're trying to impart in the best way we can the, the beneficial tools and ways, and compassion is one of them. A long time ago, um, when I was beginning to study and practice the Dhamma with my first teacher, Anagarika Munindra, uh, I asked him this question, and I only knew what this question was and his answer when I looked back in a journal that I had been writing uh, during that time. And I came this across this journal just a few years ago. And I asked him this question, well, what's the reason for living, anyway? What's my reason for living? And at that time, I was about 26 or 27 years old. That was about 30 years ago now. And he said, very just flat out, he said, the reason for living is to develop compassion and wisdom. This is your reason for living. And so, actually, I didn't know what it meant. But um, I had some kind of far-reaching goal, some maybe some high bar. And I was so, now when I look back, I'm so appreciative that my teachers, the teachers that I chose, gave me very high bars, very far-reaching goals, not, not just um, to have a calm mind, or to get along with my family. But the goal was to actually experience Nibbana. That's the goal, you know, of compassion and wisdom. Nibbana meaning the unconditional, or the kind of... uh, There are many ways that people translate that, too, uh, different traditions. But to understand deeply the nature of life and and to embody that in our lives. So the two great wings of the Dhamma are said to be compassion and wisdom. These are the two great wings. The bird of freedom, of liberation, cannot fly unless these two wings are complete, are fully complete. It takes compassion to develop wisdom. And compassion is a natural outcome also of wisdom. There's a lovely saying by Sri Nisargadatta, um, an East Indian. I think he, uh, he was a simple man. Um, and he said, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. 
So it's this compassion or the love that we maybe understand deeply that when we do, we feel that kind of connection with all of life, the everythingness of life. And it's the kind of wisdom that actually that love and compassion brings us to, that we see the emptiness of life, which, which can be a scary grouping of words and kind of an understanding that we don't understand right now, but we will come to understand it. So how do we bring these two together? How do we let our lives flow between these two and be um, unique individuals in this world that know ourselves completely and that can act in the world effectively? So compassion, there are many ways that people describe this, but basically, in a simple way, it's to develop that care and that tenderness to be able to face life so that we're not turning away from it. To be able to face what we've been born into, this this what we've been born into is um, this is how it is. The family we've been born into, this period of time we've been born into, very auspicious in many ways that we've been born into a time when we still can hear the teachings of the, of the Buddha, when the beautiful teachings of Christ are still here, when we've had in our lifetime um, Martin Luther King, and Gandhi, and Mandela, and the Dalai Lama. We, we live in incredible times, times when we can receive the teaching of uh, 9-11, to be able to open to the destruction and the violence of that and live through it. And we're still gaining from gaining stronger hearts from that, hopefully. So how can we face all of that, not just in terms of individual, family, uh, society, global, but in terms of um, just seeing the universality, facing the universality of suffering, of being able to take it from a personal sense to an impersonal sense, This is what brings us to wisdom, the wisdom of seeing life in that universal sense, in that sense of not getting caught in in the personal, seeing it as unique and personal. We need to do that in order to relate to life, but how how can we become bigger than that so we relate to life in a more profound and a bigger way? The Buddha described wisdom, or non-ignorance, as seeing the Four Noble Truths. (coughs) Understanding, seeing the Four Noble Truths. And the Buddha began his whole teaching 
with that Four Noble Truths. The, in Pali, the Four Noble Truths, the first one is Dukkha Satcha. Dukkha means suffering, and Satcha means the truth. So it might be an easier way to accept this, um, not in terms of that life is suffering, but more in terms of there is this truth of suffering. There is this truth of suffering. There is the truth of suffering. This is the literal translation of dukkha, satcha. There is the truth of suffering. To be able to open to that, we need compassion. Because without compassion, it's hard to even turn towards it. This truth of suffering, on a global sense, on a community sense, on an individual sense, on a moment-to-moment sense. To be able to open to it and accept, this is how it is right now. Not, and that's not to say we can't change it. We can have, um, we can have some degree of effect in the changing of it all. But the first step is to open to it which is a very difficult thing to do and which compassion helps us to do. It also helps us to probe beneath the surface of how things are, kind of on a a personal sense. How is it, moment to moment, to have the willingness to look more deeply? Why? because it gives us a greater range of understanding. We're, we're not so limited by uh, the old concepts that keep us in suffering, bound on the wheel of this existence of suffering. The Buddha said also, there is one thing and one, one thing that keeps us bound on this wheel of suffering. And that is ignorance of the truth of suffering. It's not opening to that first noble truth. So how can we open to accept and then probe beneath the surface and be able to know for ourselves that when we probe beneath the surface, that's when we begin to know that there is a cause and there because we can know the cause, we can know the end. We can know how to come to that end of suffering. I copied this from um, the Dalai Lama's book on compassion, entitled Compassion. And he said, the basic aim of my explanation on compassion is to show that by nature we are compassionate, that compassion is something very necessary and something which we can develop. It is important to know the exact meaning of compassion. The Buddhist interpretation is that genuine compassion is based on a clear acceptance or recognition that others, like oneself, want happiness and have a right to overcome suffering. 
on that basis one develops some kind of concern about the welfare of others, irrespective of their attitude towards oneself. Much of our practice has to do with opening to that, opening to the difficulty in ourselves and in the world. It isn't something that we're trained to do. In school, um, you know, we, we don't learn to do this so much. And unfortunately, um, like the Reverend said in the last Dhamma talk, he said that, you know, we're not so close to our family unit these days. I, I think that it's very beneficial that those of us in Asian uh, families still have kept our connection, but it's, it's changing. And so we get the benefit of hearing from our elders simple words that that have so much wisdom that keep us connected to, you know, knowing it. It's this world is hard. That's how it is. In in Hawaii, um, they say um, it, it's a pigeon talk, but we do we do talk pigeon in a very endearing way. They say that's why hard. That's why it's hard. That's what the elders say. Yeah. You, you go to them and they say, whatever elder there is in, in the community, and you say, oh, this is how it is. Um, and they say, yeah, that's why hard, yeah. That's why hard, yeah. And they're not trying to, you know, go to the place to make it different right away. <laughs> they're, all, they're just in the place of saying, yeah, that's, that's the way it is. So it's like we need more of that. And it takes that tenderness of heart, that softness of heart to go there. When um, Seda Upandita, my my teacher, who's actually been my practice teacher for many years, when he came here for the first time and he did one of his first retreats in, in the West, he commented that on the surface of things, it seems like we in the West have, you know, there's all this glitter, this of luxury and um, comfort and all, but it doesn't take too long when people are in retreat, he sees, that there's only a thin veneer on the surface and underneath there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of suffering. And he had so much compassion for that. So. Here we, we learn in our practice, in the stillness, in the silence, where you know, we're able to be supported by many. We don't have to cook or wash the dishes or anything. When we don't have the usual crutches of going to get entertainment when things are hard for us, that we, we just we stay with it, we stay with it, we stay with it. We learn to face it over and over and over again. Compassion is described as the quivering of the heart that awakens to suffering. And this quivering of the heart, sometimes you feel, you know, it may feel like fear. You know, the, it's, it may feel like, oh, I'm scared about this. I cannot face this. It, whatever is being faced, whether it's your one's own anger 
or the anger outside of oneself. But if you check carefully, that quivering of the heart could be that awakening to being able to be with what's happening. The quivering of the heart says that awareness is here. It's not asleep. There's not ignorance here. There's not ignoring here. There's actual being with here. It, it, it does actually feel shaky. So just to be with that shakiness, that quivering, and to know that my heart is alive, that ignorance is being awakened, is very important to see it that way. And to face that difficulty with a kind of, um, not with like being, wanting to strike out at it or, you know, push it away because it's too hard, but open, open, to open the heart more, make more room for it to be there. Trungpa Rinpoche, that many of us, no matter what um, path that we've followed, whether it's the Theravada, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, have um, been uh, supported by and nourished by the words of Trungpa, Trungpa Rinpoche. And he, this, this um, phrase that he has has always gotten to me, that compassion is a force that helps us open to reality with a noble heart. Not to how I want it to be, but to how it is with a noble heart. That's what makes us noble, is this compassion. It said that compassion is born out of a simple care, a simple feeling of loving kindness. Loving kindness is that experience of just being uh, open and accepting to having an open heart to all of life. May you be happy, may you be peaceful, no matter whether you're short or tall, you're, no matter what uh, family you come from, no matter whether you're strong or not strong, whether you're old or young. This is what it says in the Sutta, in the Loving Kindness Sutta. That open to all. Compassion is um, very is much more specific. It's taking that metta or loving kindness and turning it very specifically towards suffering. This is what compassion is all about. It's specifically towards suffering. It turns loving kindness, turns uh, it brings the aspect of compassion out of loving kindness. It said that compassion is uh, very much like mindfulness itself, very much like awareness itself, in that uh, awareness can turn to what is difficult without flinching, without turning away from it. Turn to anything without turning away from it. There's a phrase that we use in, in the West when we do compassion practice, the traditional phrase, by the way, is, may you be free from your pain and sorrow. This is a traditional phrase. Um, a, a way that meditators have fed back to us that seems to be easier for them is, 
I care about this pain, or I care about your pain, when they take an individual, reflect on their suffering, whether it's themselves or another, and are able to say to that individual silently within themselves, I care about this pain, so that we can actually bring the quality of open-hearted awareness there. But that's really tricky because sometimes we can get lost in the pain part and not feel the strength of our stability in the caring part. And so compassion trains us when we over and over again turn to what's difficult. Compassion trains us to um, shift our stability, our, our feeling of stability, to shift it into the place of care and not get lost or drowned in the place of suffering, to be with it, but not to be drowning in it. It said that the near enemy of compassion, near enemy is called the near enemy because it seems like compassion, but it really isn't. It can seem like compassion. And this is a kind of unhealthy grief, kind of a, there is a healthy kind of grief. That healthy kind of grief is the grief we need to be honest about, you know, that we are sad uh, about something. That's healthy to actually acknowledge that and understand that to be true. The unhealthy kind of grief is when we're just totally lost in it. So the near enemy is an unhealthy kind of grief that sometimes uh, slides into self-pity, where we've lost our strength to actually be helpful to another. We can't even be helpful to ourselves then, because we're just lost in the mire of it. I tell this one story a lot, but I think only Larry has heard it many times. (laughs) Uh, I was once in the presence of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, and uh, he was talking about what was happening in his homeland of Tibet in, in a very compassionate and forthright way, and also in a way where he was, um, he was embodying a lot of understanding himself about both sides of the picture. And someone in the audience uh, approached and said um, that he wanted to do everything he could to fight for what was right in Tibet, for the justice that needed to be done, that he would do anything. And he was quite upset about this and just going through a lot of obvious anger and a kind of, that was coming from a deep grief. And the Dalai Lama, uh, His Holiness, said to him, wait, not yet, it's not time yet. No, wait until you can understand more deeply what's going on in your own heart before you bring that 
out into the world, bring your action out in the, in the world. So that's very important when we, when we can understand what is going on in us, really, um, to bring our compassion to that first. When, when we're in a place of balance and we feel a compassion, open-hearted experience in, re- in relation to what's going on, if we're honest with ourselves, we can see that once in a while it does slip into grief into this unhealthy kind of grief. But what's needed there is just to know that it's happening and have a kind of sobering honesty about that and then find balance in ourselves before we continue to do our work in the world. I had the experience of one of my children, my oldest one, She's given me permission to tell this story. She went through a very difficult time a couple of years ago where she had a health crisis. And um, she was diagnosed with um, cervical cancer at young age, you know, only 34. And so, um, of course, as a mother, your heart aches and, and there's periods of feeling balanced and periods of feeling inner turmoil and fear and not knowing what's going on. And so I went to help her during her uh, surgery. And she was um, uh, kind of on the verge of it being serious. I don't know what that... Num- there's a certain number stage, so-and-so. and Anyway, she was in, in that category. She's okay now, by the way. I always forget to say that, and then I got lots of notes. Uh, (laughs) She's okay now. And um, I was in the hospital with her, and so she had had her surgery, and uh, she wasn't getting enough pain medication. And I was in a place of pretty much going along with her a, a good deal of balance, helping her, what she needed to go through, just whatever, you know, cleaning her up and feeding her and being with her sorrow and her fear and, and when couldn't do that and taking some time for myself and just looking inward, finding some time of quiet and then going back. And then there was one time when she wasn't getting enough pain medication and I, I just became uh, inside very upset and um, impatient and then kind of verging into a little bit of outrage and why, why aren't they doing this quick enough, you know, and going to the nurses and saying, why can't you do it like right, right now? It, it, you know, it's been hours already. Well, well what's happening? And um, so, and my daughter is going, you know, it's very painful for her. And so um, then there was a point where she was sitting in her bed, not in in pain, and I was kind of at the end of the bed and looking at her. And I was I was slipping fast into that place of uh, that unhealthy grief, pity for her, pity for myself. I could feel myself on a slippery slope. And she saw me, and I, and there, there were times when I just had to go in the hallway and just kind of lean against the wall and just kind of slink down, 
you know. And so this time I was with her, and she just saw me doing that, you know, just kind of slinking down. And she said, Mom, don't come here with me. She said, I'm already sinking. Don't sink with me. I need you on stable ground. I need you on stable ground. And I just sort of pulled myself up and I said, okay, I'm here now. You know, it just took like a moment. I could... She, I needed her to remind me. I mean, I wish that we always had those reminders and people to tell us. But there's a story in the text about this, you know, about how a person jumped in uh, or fell in a quicksand, and then another person, uh, not so wise, jumped in to save that person. Cannot be done. Cannot be done. So how do we stay on stable ground? This is the question. I don't have all the answers. And not jump in. How do we get not get lost in our grief about what's going on in the world, the injustice? And how do we not get lost in what's going on inside? How do we stay stable? And it's going to be different moment to moment. The answer I may have or had in that moment may not be the answer you need in your moment. But you, we each have our unique tools that we can draw on. So sometimes uh, we feel, um, you know, we, how can we feel vul- vulnerable yet strong? How can we open to like, yeah, this out there, it's, it's an effing mess out there. It is. But how can we be strong and face it at the same time? How can we open to the vulnerability of that? One way that I love the First Noble Truth expressed is life is vulnerable. Life is vulnerable. And I'm part of life. I'm not separate from any of that. So how can we evolve as a human being in this short time that we have here and not stay in that place of overwhelming grief or pity? Um, Sometimes what... uh, keeps us in a place of suffering is um, not seeing that we're in a place of self-righteousness. And we get in that place because we think we know how it should be, but do we really know how it should be? Do we really know? When we open to the truth of suffering, a kind of humbling arises. And so we may say, instead of come from a place of self-righteousness 
or uh, selfing about whatever is going on. We can, we can say, um, like there's this very wonderful nun where I practice. Um, she's so learned. She's a doctor, a medical doctor, and she's so humble, and she's a nun now, and she's dedicating her life to the sasana, the, the dhamma. And um, she knows a lot. And I was going through a difficult time, and um, I just somebody who's embodied that humility and that uh, great understanding at the same time. She's one of the top nuns of my of the monastery that I go to. And I was having a difficult time with just opening to the universal sense of suffering. What, not in a personal sense, but just opening to a deeper sense of suffering. And she came to me. I was walking, and she could tell. And um, she turned to me, and she said, she stopped me, and she said, Sister, sir, I don't know what to do, but I care about you. I don't know what to do, but I care about you. And that's all that I needed. I, I didn't need anything more. I didn't need to know any famous words of anybody or that she, you know, how, how to do this or that. She just told me that she cared about me. And that gave me the strength to keep going. Compassion doesn't insist on laying a veneer of idealism onto how we think we should be or we, how we think the world should be. There's a component of compassion, an, an element that needs to come in to make compassion truly powerful, and that element is equanimity. Equanimity is not being complacent with how things are, but it's opening to how things are and giving a big space around it. Um, Equanimity is a spacious balance with what's going on. So compassion can say, I can turn my heart away from this place of just being with this idea of how I think it should be in myself or with others. I can let go of that for a moment and just open to, this is how it is right now. This is how it is right now. Sort of like sobering honesty about the rawness of life.
sometimes when people are struggling, um, and I, I think about my children uh, a lot when I reflect on this, and they're struggling through something, and or one of my friends, or even my own mother, and they're struggling through something, and um, I want to change that struggle for them somehow, because I myself, it's too painful for me to watch. And what I want to change more than anything else is the pain in myself. It's not so much the pain in the other person, but I don't want to feel this pain of watching them go through their struggle. And so I'm doing everything I can, you know, to change that struggle. But then I realize that that struggle is important for them to go through. I know it's hard to know what's the difference between letting a person go through their struggle and, and just helping them. That I don't know the answer to that, but sometimes we know for ourselves. My mother, uh, my mother's, I think I can say this to all of you. can't say this to everybody because it pushes buttons sometimes, but my mother's been my teacher. I revere my mother. And she's a simple woman, only went to the fourth grade elementary school. And uh, she's a really good woman. And... Um, But she has a hard time with a lot of things, like all people do. And now she's at an age where she's looking to me. And she's older, and she can't think so straight sometimes. And um, recently, just a couple of weeks ago, she fell down, and she broke, uh, severed her shoulder. It's just a fracture, but it's very painful. And she's just going through a lot of pain, just a lot of physical pain. And all I could do is be with her and help her get through that pain moment to moment. Um, I couldn't take it away, of course. I wanted it to be different. I hated seeing her go through it. I wanted to change it. But there was something about her going through it that I knew that somehow her heart was gaining something from going through that struggle. There's a story by Ruth Sanford, um, The Butterfly. How many of you have heard this story? Butterfly. A compassionate person seeing a butterfly struggling to free itself from its cocoon and wanting to help very gently loosen the filaments to form an opening. The butterfly was freed emerged from the cocoon and fluttered about but could not fly. What the compassionate person did not take into account was that only through the birth struggle can the wings grow strong enough for flight. Its shortened life was spent on the ground. It never knew freedom. It never really lived. 
So that, I know that gives us a lot of um, different teachings. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. It's the striking out at what we find hard to face. It's hatred in many of its different forms. Cruelty can be abandoning as well as striking out. The, the abandoning of, of dismissal, of, of not acknowledging one's suffering. Um, striking out. How do we strike out? There's so many ways when we experience suffering. Blaming is a way of striking out. Separation, when we feel there's I and there's you, there's us and there's them. When people feel that, it's striking out. Oh, and we may not know it. It's a kind of cruelty. If we don't have strong mental energy, we're just lost in that far enemy of cruelty. If we don't have strong mental energy, it takes a lot of strength of mindfulness to know that this is happening now. But it's important to know that in ourselves. It's important to know cruelty in our own hearts. This kind of far enemy is one that it's important to have the experience of. Because when we know it in ourselves, and we can have compassion for it in ourselves, there's a possibility of having compassion for it in another. Again, the His Holiness says, Until you understand the meaning of suffering in all its forms, there will be a measure of hypocrisy to your compassion. So how often have we seen in another person, you know, violence or hatred, and we can with sobering honesty see, oh, that's just the mirror of what I experienced in this own heart. It may not be as big as what we see out there, but it's sort of somewhat of a mirror. Then in a way that's our connection. We're not only connected through love or through, you know, things that are easeful to connect. We're connected through difficulty. We're majorly connected through difficulty. And to realize that is a big thing. We're connected by hatred. We're connected by violence. We're connected by impatience, by frustration. When we know it in ourselves, we know it in others, and hopefully more compassionately. How do we come to know this in ourselves? Is um, when we can be quiet and look inside, have this time for introspection. It's a precious time to do that. Compassion transforms suffering. Not so much in the world, but in our own hearts. And when we can transform suffering in our own hearts, then there is the genuine power to transform it outside of ourselves. 
So does compassion help others? That's a question people ask. What helps us helps others when we know that in ourselves. We can know that in others. So we can transform the world this way, one heart at a time, starting with ourselves. It's not possible to do it out there until we do it in here. Compassion for the near and far enemy in our own hearts So I'd just like to end with this um, poem by wonderful woman, Naomi Shihab Nye. Um, The name of her poem is Kindness. It's really that specific kind of kindness that's compassion. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you hold in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road and know in yourself, this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing inside. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes. Only kindness that mails your letters that goes to the store only kindness that raises its head. And from the crowd of the world, it says, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit for one moment and let the words dissolve.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.